This is this is fine. 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 This is a poor substitute for therapy, but an excellent substitute for other podcasts. We're not like other podcasts. Join us as we find the answers to the universe's biggest questions like is butter a carb? Does crying burn calories? And what the fuck am I doing with my life? We're here to be your part-time therapist, astrologer, concierge doctor, and fairy godmother. Do you need someone to validate you today? Cool, cool, cool. Come on in. We're fine. This is fine. Hello there, loves. Today, our focus is ADHD, specifically ADHD in adult women. What does it look like? Why is it overlooked? Why do so many women get delayed diagnoses later in life? And what does treatment look like? A word of warning, this is going to be a long one today, almost like a short audiobook. The timestamps will be in the episode description so you can jump to different sections. Just be sure to bookmark and download this episode so you can come back to different sections later. Here's what's going down. We're going to start with a personal anecdote about getting a diagnosis later in life from my aunt, actually. We'll then bring on Terry Matlin, psychotherapist and adult ADHD specialist with a specific focus on women with ADHD. She's the author of two books, The Queen of Distraction and Survival Tips for Women with ADHD. Fun fact, Terry also has ADHD herself. After we get that background from a professional, we're going to hear some more personal accounts from adult women with ADHD, talking about their own unique experiences, what led up to their diagnoses, how they got diagnosed, and what they're doing now to manage and thrive. So we're going to get a clinical perspective with some concepts, some framework, signs and symptoms, the context. Then we're hearing how it's applying to real people in different ways at different ages and stages. Let's do it. Hello. Hi, Auntie. Hi. I'm so happy we're doing this today. Thank you so much. No problem. Hi, my name is Lori, and I got my ADHD diagnosis at age 65. Okay, Auntie, thank you for joining us today. I would love to have our listeners understand a little bit about how this diagnosis impacted you and changed your life, perhaps for the better. How has your life changed or been different since you got this diagnosis? Um, well, I did wind up going on some medication, which helped some of the symptoms, which were some disorganization mm-hmm. and talking a lot and fast and interrupting people because thoughts are in my head and I mm-hmm. get them out, I'll forget. And it also cleared a lot of things up. When I look back in my life, I did certain things. My doctor was giving me things, telling me things how to keep myself organized. And 90% of what he told me to do, I already had implemented in my life throughout my life. So wow. he said, learned to deal with it. I didn't know what ADHD was. And my generation didn't really have those kind of things so mm-hmm. much. Knew that. I was a little different in my head, but I was, that's just who I am. This is who I am. I think that's such a good way to look at it. Like you're not different or wrong. Like this is just how your brain is wired. Right. Right. And you self-adapted and you basically had to figure out over the course of your entire lifespan, how to do what society has set up for quote unquote neurotypical people. Yes. Well, a lot of people say that 
ADHD, you have superpower also, because when you get into doing something in your job that you really like, you really totally intensify and you hyper-focus. So you get done quickly. But when you have to do something that you really don't like, there's procrastination and you wind up doing it last minute. But you still do a good job because you really wind up, you have this perfectionism thing about wanting things to be done well. And so even if you don't do it, I've just had like overnighters where I had things and deadlines that just would not sleep. Wow. (laughs) Because I'd have to get it done. Yeah. I mean, that does sound like a superpower because I cannot do an overnighter. (laughs) So has getting this diagnosis allowed you to look at yourself more compassionately? Yes. Amazing. And if there was something you could say to younger Lori, pre-ADHD diagnosis, what would that be? Love yourself for who you are. (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. And honestly, it's so good for everyone to hear. (laughs) Last thing... Why do you think it took so long for your doctors to figure this out for you? And uh, what have you learned from that part of the experience? I never talked to anybody about it. Ah, okay. And I would just start started hearing, start hearing about ADD, ADHD. I had a nephew who has it. You know, they're hyper. Kids are hyper. Mm-hmm. They, they run around. They don't pay attention. But you're, it has nothing to do with your intelligence. Very right. bright. There are many doctors who have ADHD. There are surgeons, but for surgeons, that hyper-focus really comes in handy. Right, the superpower. Yeah, and so never thought about it. And I was diagnosed with anxiety. I was having a really hard time when my kids were young because I always worried about having to do the perfect thing and what if I make a mistake? How is it going to result with my kids, you Mm -hmm. know, if I... Did something wrong, I'd be up all night thinking about it. And it turns out later when I was seeing another doctor, he, well, I took a test and just written down on the questions they ask. And talking to him, he's like, you definitely have ADHD, but your anxiety could have been caused by the ADHD. Wow. Okay. So that was more of a symptom versus its own thing. Yes, you, you, and most people do have two things because ADHD, you worry about things mm-hmm. or you're doing things differently or trying to fit in and then so you get anxiety. Wow. So since having this diagnosis and getting the proper treatment, would you say that your anxiety has lessened? Yes. That's amazing. Yes. So things have gotten better in a number of ways. Yes. Very much so. Do you have any advice for any women your age about getting a diagnosis or maybe reflecting where there are potentially signs that other people could start to take inventory of? I remember when I was young, socially, like watching people on how you're supposed to act. So you can go back and look in your life and think how things are. And It's really hard because you're successful. Like I had a successful career. You have all these things that are that you have, but inside, you have to look deep inside yourself. You know, something is a little bit off. There wasn't anything that was said when I was young about these things. Right. You know, boys were put in a corner while boy, he's, you know, a bad boy. He <laughs> doesn't pay attention. Like, that's what it was. You, ju- you got, They got punished. But my doctor told me there are so many women over the age of 50 
that were never diagnosed and could be diagnosed. And there's still girls in school that are not diagnosed because girls don't get up and be rowdy. Mm-hmm. They're staring out the window, daydreaming when they're bored of what's going on. They like stare out a window and they just totally lose and are not listening. And they talk a lot. And it's just known, well, girls are chatty and girls daydream. So I have a sister-in-law who's a teacher and she said it's very hard because teachers aren't supposed to say anything like they have to, parents need to go to a doctor and you can't really say anything. And she said, you know, but so many girls are just left behind with this this diagnosis. Right. This condition that seems to have a different set of parameters for different genders where it's not allowing young girls and even older women to get the treatment and the support that they need to live a more peaceful life. Yes. Well, thanks to you starting to shed some light on this and share your experience. Hopefully anyone listening to this will be able to start their own process and take stock of what's going on with their brain and how they function and maybe reflecting on their life. So maybe they can follow in your footsteps. It really was freeing, I have to say. (laughs) Well, thank you. This has been so helpful. And I think what you're doing is really paving the way for people to get healthier. So thank you for putting yourself out there for us. No problem. Thank you for doing this for me (laughs) and for everyone listening. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) You know, people just need to know. Yeah, people do need to know. But my generation, you didn't go to a therapy unless you were really like bipolar or something. There was something really severe interfering with, you know, publicly interfering with your life. Yes. Yeah. That's Um, so sad. Um, now, I mean, your generation is so good. Like people are just so honest and open and it just makes it so much better for well, people. It's wonderful to hear a compliment about the younger generation from an older generation. <laughs> Thank you again, Nancy. I love you. Okay, welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you so much for joining us. We start every episode by asking, are you fine today? I'm doing great and I hope you, you're doing well and that your listeners are doing well as well. Oh my gosh, thank you. No one really does that. Thank you for checking on all of us. <laughs> okay. I'm like a mama hen. You know, yeah, can I, I can tell you're looking out for all of us and that is honestly what brings us to today. Do you want to share with listeners a bit of your professional and personal background? Sure. So to begin with, uh, Personal, I am a uh, mom of two um, two young adult daughters, one of whom has ADHD. Her story is a little different than from most. Um, I have ADHD, and I wasn't diagnosed with it until my early 40s after um, trying to figure out how to help my daughter with ADHD. Wow. Yeah, and I'm also a psychotherapist. And when all of this happened with my daughter, I decided to completely switch my work to working with uh, specifically women with ADHD because at that time, way back when, there was not much known about women with ADHD and how to identify them and how to help them. So when I saw how um, things were moving, uh, I wanted to be part of that movement. And then I became very active in the national and international agencies and organizations that work with just specifically ADHD. I got very involved with that. And that led me to opening up this private practice in real life. And then that turned into primarily an online resource called addconsults.com. 
And from there, I leapfrogged into a lot of writing, and I wrote two books on the topic. One is Survival Tips for Women with ADHD, and the more recent book is called The Queen of Distraction. Love the title. And I've just immersed, <laughs> yeah, I've just immersed my life into this because I see so much potential and so much promise and so many women who are looking, who are searching for this kind of help. Yeah. So that's pretty much my story. I'm also an artist and a writer and a poet and all kinds of things. And, you know, if there's time to talk about ADHD and creativity, I yeah. think it's a nice thing to talk about. Absolutely. There's a lot of us out there. Yes. I love hearing this. And it's just making me think so many of my peers, my friends who have been recently diagnosed with ADHD are so creative. They're artists of different kinds. So I'm so glad you pointed that out. So let's start with some general framework. Is there one singular definition of ADHD or is it an umbrella term? Can you explain that? It's a little complicated because in order to be diagnosed with ADHD, you have to follow the guidelines in the DSM, which is right. the Diagnostics, don't oh, always forget the name. Statistic Manual. Yeah. <laughs> manual, yeah. Because if, um, if you want to get reimbursed for getting any kind of treatment for your ADHD, you have to really follow what's, what's, what's said in that in that book. Interesting. But in general, yeah, in general, ADHD is a neurodevelopmental condition and it's an imbalance of neurotransmitters. It sounds very complicated and I don't get into that uh, specific work of how the brain uh, shows as an ADHD brain or whatever kind of brain, but that's part of it. And it's often hereditary. We know that if you have a parent with ADHD, there's, I think, around a 50% chance that the child or children might have ADHD. And conversely, if you have a child with ADHD, the same statistics go the other way. That means that perhaps 50% of the time, uh, one or both of the parents would wow. have ADHD. So this causes people to have difficulty paying attention or controlling impulses. It can also cause hyperactivity. Now, here we go with there's differences between kids with ADHD and adults with ADHD, men and women right. with ADHD. So in general, it can cause hyperactivity. But in adults, especially women, um, it's often more seen as having problems with disorganization, okay. memory issues, problems following instructions. Like if someone tells, if I'm on the road and I'm lost mm -hmm. and I stop and someone says to me at the gas station, well, turn right at the next stoplight, and then after two blocks, turn left, and then go about a mile and turn. I'm already gone. Okay. Yep. I can't follow that. Yeah. And there's problems from losing things. We have problems with executive functioning. Executive functioning, you tell me if we have time, but it's a really important component. Yeah. Because everybody with ADHD has a problem with executive functioning. Do you want to elucidate on that a bit? Of course, I would be happy to. So executive function in a very simplistic explanation of that would be having problems getting from A to B and from B to C. Okay. So to simplify it a little bit more in, in more practical ways, this may sound really kind of weird to people who do not have ADHD, but for those of us who do, it makes perfect sense. So here's an example. We do our laundry what once a week, maybe once every two weeks, once every few days, depending on what our needs are. Mm -hmm. So someone without an ADHD brain would just automatically know that you throw your whites with the whites, your colored uh, clothes with the colored clothes, and then you might put all of the whites in the washer, and then you remember to take that out, put it in the dryer, and then the colored clothes go into that. Well, so someone with ADHD might not have the ability or an easy ability 
or an automatic ability to just do it. Right. So it becomes confusing. It can become, now this is a very simplistic example. And with the people I've worked with, and there's people where we have written down each step on an index card, taped it to the washing machine to help us just do every step. So getting from A to B, B to C, and so on without falling apart. Wow. Yeah. I mean, or feeling absolutely horrible about ourselves. So it's the day to day functioning that. I, like you're saying, goes from A to B, things like, okay, I get up, I, you know, take a probiotic, I brush my teeth, I pour coffee, like a, a routine. I feel like this is where TikTok kind of comes in and maybe pathologizes a bit. Maybe you have overlap, but you don't necessarily have like the ADD executive functioning issues. But for someone who maybe isn't automated in that way, but they may be neurotypical, is there overlap? Have you seen that in your practice where someone has what could appear to be an ADHD symptom, but wouldn't necessarily diagnose that person with ADHD? Well, here's what's confusing. Everybody has certain aspects of ADHD. It's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. We might, um, yeah, we might run late. We're, we're late for work all the time. Let's, let's do that. Okay. But in every, most other areas in our lives, it's not an issue. There mm-hmm. aren't problems, but it's just that one particular thing. So in TikTok and in other areas, someone might say, well, gosh, I must have ADD because I'm always late. And I know right. the people with ADD are always late. They drive me crazy. Right. But we can also talk about other um, other kinds of conditions that do are problematic and can look like ADHD but aren't. Or they can travel together, which we call comorbidities, which means you can have ADHD and, say, bipolar Okay. Or you can have ADHD and anxiety. Now, right. what's causing some of the problems? It could be the anxiety. It could be the ADHD. It could be the combination of the two. But there's a lot of overlap. If that's what you're saying, I'm not yeah. sure that's what you're asking of me. But well, yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm, I'm just a lot of overlap. There are certain things that someone can say. I really identify with this. Do I have ADHD? I see that happening quite a bit in social media and pop culture. And uh, I just want to lay out a resource for someone listening right now. If you have gone through that and you're like, TikTok tells me I have ADHD every day. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we 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 lay out some some ideas like should you, you know, maybe should you pursue going to speak with someone and getting a diagnosis or should you kind of put that to rest? I feel like our conversation today might be able to help with that. Well, just as an overview of that, I would say that if it's whatever it is, if it's something that's complicated in your life, if it's causing problems in your day-to-day living, if it's compromising your self-esteem, it is time to talk to a professional because even if it's not ADD, maybe something else is going on that's making your life miserable. Right. And so, you deserve support. Yeah. And like I, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you did bring up that a lot of girls and women go undiagnosed. Can we talk about how this might present uh, with a gender difference and why there is a gender difference? Sure. So I have a special interest in girls and women, particularly women with ADHD. And I think the problem goes back to um, the work of somebody, a colleague of mine named Sari Solden, who brought this out years ago in her first book, Women with Attention Deficit Disorder. And what she talks about is societal expectations of girls, let alone women, but it starts off as as girls. We are the ones who are taught by society, which then funnels down to parents who teach our daughters, you need to learn X, Y, and Z. And those X, Y, and Zs could be 
caregiving, uh, taking care of people, taking care of um, as you get older, as a woman and who's possibly married with children, is taking care of the household, taking care of the needs of the kids while working full-time oftentimes, maybe part-time. And so these expectations can make a girl feel absolutely awful or a woman. Okay. Because we can't live up to those expectations right. if you have ADHD. So okay. we fall apart. Now, when you look at boys and men, and here's another piece to this, is that the ADHD, if a girl has ADHD, it's going to exhibit itself in usually in different ways than a young boy. So when a lot of people think of ADHD, just in general, mm-hmm. they think of a little boy in school who's jumping out of his seat, making trouble. Yep. Uh, tapping kids on the back, getting their attention, falling out of his chair, that sort of thing. And those boys are easily, more easily, not always, but more easily identified because their behaviors are so externalized. Right. Oh, it's I see obvious. where you're going. It's obvious. Yep. Yeah. It's okay. obvious that they're having some trouble. In girls, we don't see as much. It's there for many, but not as many as we see in boys. But we don't see as much of the hyperactivity impulsivity. So girls and women tend to internalize their ADHD symptoms. So they might be staring out the window daydreaming. Those are the girls in the back. I still remember this as a kid. Mm-hmm. Seeing girls in the back of the room twirling their hair around their finger and just kind of la, 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 la. You know, they're in their yep. own inner, rich, rich inner world. Mm-hmm. So those girls aren't, they, they don't stand out and they get missed. And so in general, statistically and research shows that the boys are more likely to get identified and um, get um, evaluated and treated for their ADHD much sooner than a girl who's inattentive in general, who's not causing a problem. So there are these gender differences you see straight off the bat because of what I just described. Right. So it's more culturally influenced maybe versus like biologically influenced, like girls learn to internalize things earlier on. Is that what you're saying? Okay, good to know. Yeah. So I saw a Reddit headline this morning on my way to the studio, which was crazy timing. And it said, undiagnosed ADHD has ruined my life, which sad, but also the way they phrased it made me laugh. Like, yeah, I, I can understand that. In general, I've also learned that, you know, because of this difference in the internalization, externalization, as you're saying, a lot of women, like you said, are going undiagnosed. How are we now figuring out how to make that diagnosis. Do you want to talk about your experience like with yourself and your daughter or shifts that you've seen within this, you know, ADHD community or within mm-hmm. the psychological community? Well, oftentimes the women that I start working with hit the wall at around the time that they're having children and trying to juggle a career. Right. It just becomes overwhelming. So before that happens, oftentimes women with ADHD who are undiagnosed can still juggle all of these things. Not everyone. I'd say a whole lot of people still have difficulty. But once you add in a partner, a spouse, children, and all the responsibilities that come with that, that's when things do fall apart. Right. And the difference now, and I've been in the field for, oh gosh, 25, at least 25 years now. What do I see that's changed? I hate to say it, but not a lot. I do think that social media goes both ways. Like with TikTok, it's brought more awareness to ADHD, but it also offers misinformation. Right. Okay. Um, So you have to kind of balance. Is that good or is that bad? You know, it's both. Right. It's both. 
I can't tell you how many women to this day say to me, ADHD, undiagnosed, untreated, has ruined my life. Wow. I have, and then they, they finally go in and get evaluated. And then another thing happens, which is very heartbreaking, but it's something that can be worked through in therapy. And that is what I hear. I have missed out on a lifetime of success. Oh, God. I have, you know, whether they've been diagnosed at 30, 40, 50, 60, or you mentioned 65, no matter what the age, this is the, the story I hear. I missed out on all these things. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought I was stupid. Right. I hate that word, but that's what they say. Yeah. I thought I was dumb. I thought there was something wrong with me. I thought I had a character flaw, personality disorder, when all along this was an imbalance of brain chemicals that can be very, very effectively treated. This is one of the most highly treatable mental health conditions. Right. But we still, and this is where the big problem, in my opinion, is, it's the professionals. They still don't know how to identify ADHD, especially in women, mm -hmm. because of what I said earlier. They internalize, they get misdiagnosed. I'd say, if I were to guess, I don't have stats on this. If I were to guess, I'd say probably about 80% of the time or so, they are misdiagnosed with depression or... They do have depression, but it's because of the ADHD that's been untreated. Right. And the focus becomes on depression. They're handed antidepressants. They're not getting much better, and they're miserable. Right. And that's what kills me and, and just tears me apart. Right. I have heard from different mental health professionals that depression can often result from a mismatch between your internal world and your external environment, which sounds very mm -hmm. similar to the experience someone would have with ADHD. The world is set up for, quote unquote, neurotypical individuals. And if you aren't that exact kind of neurotypical, the inside world that you're experiencing doesn't match the outside, which can then lead to depression, like you were saying, caused mm -hmm. by the ADHD experience versus just inherently being depression itself. And you can see them both coexisted and not having one to do with the other. So you can right. have ADHD and a separate depression or anxiety or substance abuse or whatever is because in the majority of people, men and women who have ADHD, they do have this coexisting condition. Right. So let's say you were saying that um, it can be really hard to diagnose, hard to identify, 80% of the time it's not being identified. If a practitioner is listening right now and they're curious, I don't know who you are, but welcome to our show. <laughs> what would you say to be looking for in an adult female individual? I think a lot of it comes down to getting some extra training and reading about what is the difference, say, between somebody who has an anxiety or de uh, disorder or depression versus someone who has ADHD because of the overlap we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So someone with depression can't get motivated, right. can't get out of bed, can't get started. You look at someone with ADHD and you can see the exact same thing. Right. So a lot of it will be education. There's these two major organizations out there. One is CHAD, C-H-A-D-D.org. Mm -hmm. The other one is ADA and it's ADD.org. ADA is specific to adults with ADD. CHAD is for all ages. And that would be a good starting point to learn more about what does ADHD look like. And then I'm certain that there's people out there, clinicians, I know of one actually, I think, um, who will spend time um, educating professionals. There's many, many workshops and conferences that people can go to to learn. And if you have a colleague that happens to do a lot of evaluating and treating of ADD, then that would be a, a person to turn to. So it's really educating oneself as a clinician 
Because nowadays, compared to when I first started, there is a lot out there and you can earn CEs, you know, let's throw that in. <laughs> um, to, <laughs> to, Motivation. To, yeah, yeah, that's a little carrot um, to help you identify and learning from your clients because you can, I mean, I certainly can do this. I can think back, gosh, many years ago when I was working with people before I knew what ADHD even was. Right. In my day, when I was um, in school, in graduate school, nobody talked about ADHD. They called it something like minimal brain damage. Wow. Yeah, they had all these terrible terms, and um, we nobody knew what it really was. It was unusual, or they called it something else, like behavioral you know, falling under the behavioral problem right. category. So educating, reading, there's some nowadays. There's so many good books. I would. Look at the work of Dr. Russell Barkley, B, like in boy, mm -hmm. A-R-K-L-E-Y. He's one of our premier um, researchers, and he's got excellent books. I would start there. Okay. Well, we'll link to all of those in the episode description. We will link to your books just to make sure people have access to as many resources as possible. You don't have to write anything down if you're listening right now. It will all be in the show notes. So back to the kind of symptoms and signs could this be like a spectrum? Like some people have more severe version of like, you know, inability to get started versus like mm -hmm. maybe a lighter version of, um, you know, attention deficit. I obviously don't have the right vocabulary to really express that question, but it, would you say there is sort of like a spectrum within the signs and symptoms? Yes, absolutely. So some people can have such mild um, ADHD symptomology that they can get by with just coming up with certain kinds of accommodations that they figured out for themselves. Right. So it could simply be, you know, I use post-its or I send myself email reminders, or I have a very supportive partner, friend, spouse who reminds me to do certain things. And then you can go all the way to severe ADHD where a person um, barely can function in life. And under federal rules and laws, we have protections for people who can't do well, can't function, let's say, in a workplace. Right. And they're protected by these laws. Now, I will say, if you're one of those, if a listener is one of those, I uh, want to caution you that that often backfires. That if, let's say, you have a job and, and you have a severe case of ADHD, or even a mild case, but it interferes with you being successful in your workplace, and you decide, well, I'm just going to file a complaint, and I'm going to go and get a lawyer and, and make sure that my boss lets me have whatever I need. Well, unfortunately, to this day, I mean, this has been going on for years, though. To this day, it's very difficult to win a case for ADHD accommodations and all that. So wow. to those who are thinking along those lines, my uh, advice is to instead of telling your boss or HR that you have ADHD and you want accommodations, is to instead talk about symptoms without revealing your ADHD. So you can say, you know... I really want to do a good job. I love my work. I love my boss, so-and-so. You know, build it up that you really want to do a good job. And you know that you would do a better job if, and here's an example, if you could have an office away from the water fountain where people seem to collect, uh, you know, during breaks. Yep. Or can I, can I get emails instead of verbal um, direction? directions from my boss mm -hmm. and that sort of thing instead of saying you know i have adhd and i need la 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 right well that usually does not work right so be more proactive with it essentially yeah without revealing your diagnosis but just saying you know i would do so much better if i could x y or z 
I really want to do a better job here. Yeah. And I think I, you know, I can be a better employee if I could get those informal accommodations. You know, this is making me think that there's an even broader lesson here too. Like maybe someone listening is like, I definitely don't have ADHD, but you know, my brain works differently in this way, right? Like everyone's brain is a little bit different. And I think being proactive mm-hmm. instead of, you know, shaming yourself or trying to fit into a mold that doesn't necessarily work. I mean, I remember having a conversation with a former boss who essentially told me I think wrong and I uh, oh, I create God. I create incorrectly and I need to do like project A start to finish, project B start to finish when instead I'm doing like project A, B, C, D, E, F like all at the same time and I bounce from project to project and I kind of fill up the columns as they go. And mm-hmm. this individual was like, no, you need to go like one at a time. And I'm like, but this oh, is how gosh. my brain works. So the lesson for me was, okay, well, I need to find an environment where I can work the way that my brain functions best so I can perform to the best of my abilities. And I feel like that's a very similar lesson to what you're saying with ADHD individuals. Exactly. And you're very lucky that you figured that out because a lot of people don't. And I think the same thing goes for schools, that everyone in the school arena expects kids to learn the same way and at the same right. pace. Right. And, and look what happens. You know, we know what happens. Some kids learn differently, just like you work differently. Mm-hmm. And here's, a, here's another point here is that people with ADHD, kids and adults, one of the worst things that can happen to them is to be bored. And I can't yeah. think what you're doing <laughs> is describing yourself and that's how your brain works. You need to leapfrog so that you don't get bored. Yep. And there are and so many those, things happening at the same time. Not to like out myself. I don't know if I have ADHD or not. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, like the, I, I have a lot of thoughts going on at the same time. And so I'm like, oh, I, I don't want to forget that. Sprinkle that in column A. Oh, I need to get back to column E. And it just kind of like bounces back and forth until everything's done. And that's why we need to figure ourselves out. Yeah. Whether it's just figuring ourselves out or working with a therapist or working with a coach. It's how does your brain work and how can you optimize whatever it is you need to do by understanding your particular brain. And everyone with ADHD is different. I've never met, you know, two people who are, you know, it's just the way it is. Like identical individuals. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Right. In the area where where one person, like for for me, so I have ADHD. I am never late. Nice. (laughs) I I am never late. I've got a pretty good sense of, of that sort of thing. A lot of people with ADD are typically late. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you why I'm not late, because I also struggle with some anxiety. Mm-hmm. So the anxiety in this particular... Um, <laughs> is your timekeeper? <laughs> yeah, it yeah. works for me. So I'm, I get so uptight, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be late. Oh my gosh. So I get to places, you know, 15 minutes earlier. So honestly, anxiety is my driver to be on time as well. <laughs> okay, so we're buddies on <laughs> Yeah, this exactly. One. I'm like, I totally get yeah. that. The idea of being late and being like disrespectful of someone's time is so nauseating to me that I yeah me too. <laughs> yeah if I, and, and embarrassing yeah and embarrassing like oh yeah so for most people they need to it's uh time there's a term for it what is it you might know time uh oh I actually don't know this one blankness? there's a term for it time oh, I'm gonna have to I look this up right while now. we're talking okay let's see <laughs> it's not time blankness time blindness Blindness. Yes. Oh my gosh. I haven't heard of this. Okay. Let's see what it says. Adults with ADHD often have a weaker perception of time and it has been proposed that this symptom is a possible diagnostic characteristic. Time blindness can mean you are always late or always way too early to avoid being late. Wow. So I guess I could add that to my list. Right. So that kind of does bring us back to some diagnostic criteria. I don't know if we necessarily outlined a few core items from that list. Can we get into that a little bit? 
Yeah, so that gets back into um, the DSM. DSM. Right, okay. All right, so in order to be diagnosed with ADHD, now it's different for adults than it is for kids. Okay. And for kids, I think you have to have six out of this list of symptoms, whereas adults only need five. I'm not sure okay. why. Okay, so for and let's just stick with adults right now. So you have to have symptoms, ADHD symptoms for at least six months, and they have to be in at least two different settings. So for instance, work and let's say at home. Okay. Okay. Another thing, a criteria would be these symptoms would have to be present prior to the age of 12. That's uh, fairly new. They used to, it used to be by the age of six, but, and I think having work done in the field of women with ADHD, because it's often much later that girls get diagnosed, they changed age six to age 12. Wow. Yeah. So now it says in the DSM, you have to have these symptoms by the age of 12. Okay. And you have to have um, symptoms that would not be described as due to something else like anxiety, which we talked about, or having a psychotic disorder. So a person with psychosis will, you know, have a lot of different kinds of problems, but they'll also have ADHD looking kinds of symptoms. So in other words, you... If you have a full-blown psychosis or schizophrenia, then you wouldn't be considered having ADHD. So those are just some of the guidelines under the DSM. But then they have different subtypes, and that becomes another whole interest, very interesting ball of wax. Right. So there's three different subtypes of ADHD that um, oftentimes, if you're being evaluated, they will tell you where you fall. So I'm just off the top of my head. One is um, the hyperactive impulsive subtype, which is not me. Okay. But it's the person who is extremely hyper and impulsive and jumping into things. Um, we see that more with males and females. Okay. Uh, a lot of children do outgrow that component. Nice. Okay. okay. Another subtype would be called combined type, which is, well, let me skip over that one. The other one is inattentive. That's kind okay. of where I fall. So I'm not one to be physically hyperactive and jumping around and doing 100 different things. I'm more of a slug, actually. Okay. And a cognitive slug too in some ways so those are and we see that more with women than with men okay so we're just sort of daydreamers the ones that are looking out the window and just kind of in their own world that's the inattentive subtype and then the most common type is called combined subtype and that's where you draw from both of those other subtypes you see some hyperactivity impulsivity and inattention okay and that's where most of us fall in the combined type Interesting. Okay. So they each have their own kind of criteria, their own, I guess, presentation in each individual. And when it comes to the inattention part, I feel like there's a bit Mm -hmm. of a paradox, right? Like the attention deficit that's part of this attention deficit disorder, but also the ability to hyper-focus. I know a lot of individuals with ADD, ADHD get really, really into a particular topic or a hobby or something that they're interested in and can really drill down and hyper-focus. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, but before I do that, let me go back to what you were just saying. Mm -hmm. So people with ADHD, I think attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity disorder is not a great term for this because it's more of pulling in our attention appropriately. Ah, okay. We have more of a surplus of attention and it's all over the place. Wow. The problem is, and it kind of feeds into this hyper-focus thing, the problem is 
taking and pulling that attention that's all over the place. Oh, I see. Well, look at that car. Hey, did you see that lady with that? Oh, did you <laughs> look at that cute dog? You know, they call yeah. it squirrel. Squirrel, squirrel mind. Yeah. Squirrel, <laughs> squirrel. yeah. So we have a surplus and that's what makes this thing so misunderstood. Wow. People think, well, how, how in the world can you say you have an attention deficit when you can be on the computer for six hours? Right. You're paying attention to everything, but it's a matter of harnessing it and channeling it. Yeah. So with the hyperfocus comes the whole thing about what keeps a person with ADHD in atten- and in uh, able to harness their attention to the point of hyperfocus is because it's something of interest, right? Shiny. So if you happen, to, <laughs> yeah. So if you happen to like, mm, let's say, play video games, that's a common thing mm-hmm. with ADHD. Well, you can play video games for hours and out. You see that a lot with kids, but adults too. Yep. But in adults, you might see things like, um, you know, things that are not healthy. So we haven't really talked about some of the negative behaviors you see in ADHD because of the ADHD brain. Okay. Always needing some kind of stimulation. That stimulation can be not good stimulation. It could be um, overeating. Okay. It can be overexercising. Right. It can be getting uh, addicted to TV or computer or, gosh, I mean, there's uh, sex. You know, sex is a big one. Shopping. People go online, especially during the uh, pandemic. Oh, my gosh. People with ADHD were just uh, racking up bills beyond uh, imagination, your imagination, because it's very stimulating. Is thrill-seeking another one? Like I can imagine if you don't want to be bored, you might be chasing some adrenaline or activities that might be dangerous. So those are more externalizing behaviors we talked about earlier. And you see that more with the hyperactive impulsive type. And you see it more in men. Okay. But I will tell you that a lot of your ER doctors have ADHD. Wow! A lot of your, mm-hmm, a lot of your fire firefighters and police staff uh, have ADHD. A lot of entrepreneurs have ADHD. Now that's for a different reason, but um, they have to come up with interesting ideas in order to function. Wow. And they feed off of these, and that's like a form of creativity. Okay. So climbing mountains, jumping out of planes. Yep. A lot of those folks have ADHD, the hyperactive impulsive type, subtype. So you brought up creativity and I would love for you to talk more about the, I guess, like the blessing of ADHD and how it can lead to some really brilliant creativity. Yeah. So a friend of mine who's a very well-known expert and author and presenter on ADHD, he was one of the early, um, early guys who talked about ADHD in adults before any, really not anybody else, maybe one person. His name is Dr. Ned, but his real name is Edward Hallowell. So it's H-A-L-L-O-W-E-L-L. He wrote one of the very first books on ADHD with his co-writer, Dr. John Rady. And it's called um, Driven to Distraction. And what he says, which I think is such a perfect term for this whole thing, what is impulsivity but creativity gone right? Wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. So you pull in your, your impulsive ADHD needs and it comes out in creative ways. So I'm just talking about my own personal life is I'm an artist, a musician, and a writer. I love it. And I don't know that I would be all of those things without ADHD because my mind is always going in different directions and I harness it and then expel it in these creative ways. Okay. So we see, at least I do, speaking for myself, but you know, a lot of my colleagues, I don't know that we have research to back this up because the research is all over the place. 
But what we see in our clinical work is very creative people, extremely creative people. Yeah, it seems like it just from my like layman perspective, <laughs> uh, just knowing people who are very creative and, and they have such special gifts. Speaking of, I got questions from some of them who have written in or called in and you know left us messages. They have some questions for you. Two are regarding medication and treatment and one is regarding stigma. Is it all right if I read those to you? Oh, please do. Awesome. So I know different providers have different takes on medication. Would just love mm-hmm. to hear your perspective. Um, so question sure. question one in that regard. If you're considering medication, what are some questions you should ask your doctor? What are good things to know? And do you have any tips on that adjustment process? What to pay attention to regarding if medication is or is not working? Okay. We can break that down. So, so the first one was, what are some okay. questions you should ask your doctor and what are the good things to know? All right. But first, let me just give you an, a one or two sentence overview. Yeah, great. In, in the research, because I'm very research oriented, in the research, we have found that the most effective medication for ADHD are the stimulants. Okay. Now we give kids Ritalin and Adderall and that sort of thing. And the same medicines that work for kids work for adults. So you want to ask your provider, what kinds of medications are you more likely to use to treat ADHD? Now, if they're talking about themselves as an adult, which I think you're saying, mm-hmm. for adult ADHD. I would put up a bit of a red flag if they start off with a non-stimulant unless, and here's the unless, and it's a very important unless, unless you have a problem with substance abuse. Mm -hmm. So if you have had a history or a current problem with substance abuse, then the safest thing to do in most cases, but not all, in most cases is to stay away from stimulants. But again, it's not a 100% um, you know, law, rule, or anything that you cannot have a stimulant if you have a history. If you're watched very closely, if you're honest with your doctor, then that, and I, I'm not an MD, I'm not a doctor, so I can't, you know, get into that too much. Right. Just saying, in general, um, stimulants for those folks might not be the best starting point. But in general, the stimulants are the most effective. Great. So you would ask your doctor, okay, what medications do you generally prescribe for ADHD? That's one thing. You would ask, how effective are they? You could ask, how will I know that they're working for me? And I can give you some answers if you want me to, but yeah. I'll just throw out some of the questions. What is the abuse potential? So the abu- abuse potential for one medication may be higher or lower than a different medication. And if you're worried about that, you need to know the answer to that. Mm-hmm. And then you would ask the doctor, well, how often will I need to come see you generally? In the very beginning of treatment, you would see your doctor more frequently until you get things figured out. And again, how do I know if it's working? That's a really tough one for people with ADHD. Um, so those are some of the you know beginning questions that I would that I would go with. Love it. You know, and you brought yeah. up um, you know how to know if it's working or not. What are some things to pay attention to in that respect? There's two parts to it. One would be for for someone to self. Um, to just watch themselves and in, in what they seem to think is helping or not helping would be pay attention to whether some of the things that you didn't get done too easily are now getting done. So I always go back to laundry. It could be getting meals on the table at five or six. If those are things, or, you know, there's a million of those kinds of examples. So pick a few. If those are areas that you struggled with your whole life and now miraculously they're getting done, I'd say, oh, I bet you it's the medication. Right. But as someone with ADHD, we tend to be poor self-observers. <laughs> yeah. 
So the next step is to ask somebody who's very close to you, could be a partner, a best friend, an employer that you feel comfortable with, ask them, do you see it? Don't maybe not even disclose that you're taking medicine, but just ask them, well, you would disclose to, you know, a, a husband, wife, whatever. But ask them, do you see a difference in me at all? If they say, no, the house is still a mess. No, you're still late for work every day. No, you're not. You're totally impatient and reactive to everything. That would be a clue. Medicine's not working. Right. But here's the thing. Maybe it's not working because you're on the wrong dosage. Mm. Maybe it's not working because you're on the wrong med. Maybe okay. it's not working because you need to take it more frequently um, than someone else. Everyone's okay. different with these medications. So a little bit of trial and error in the beginning stages. Right. Okay. Um, the second question regarding medication and treatment, do I have to be on medication forever? How do I talk about a long-term plan with my doctor rather than just resorting to the medication forever approach that is common with antidepressants? Okay, so we know that antidepressants are very different than, mm -hmm. um, let's say, stimulant medication. We'll stick sure. with that for a while. Yeah. Um, no, not everyone has to be on medications their whole lives. And what, what we find, especially if you're working with a, an ADD coach or if you're in therapy, is you learn strategies along the way. Now, will it take a year? Will it take six months? Or will it take 10 years? Every, everybody's different. Different people have more complicated lives than others. You know, they're dealing with uh, children and work and so on. And maybe someone else is retired and doesn't have all of those complications in life. So... Again, everyone is different and it's hard to, it's almost impossible probably to predict who would need to be on medication long-term versus short-term. Right. We do know that the stimulants, um, which a lot of people don't know, are typically very safe medications if, and that's a big if, they are taken as directed. Right. Because so, as you brought up earlier, there is abuse potential with certain medication. I mean, with any medication, right? Yeah, ADD medication, especially stimulants. Mm -hmm. There is a, the potential there. I don't want to sugarcoat this whole thing mm -hmm. because a lot of clinicians do see a big problem with people abusing the stimulants or buying it or they're uh, taking it from a friend right. when they shouldn't be. However, I also see some overreactivity as well. Right. So let's say you're a parent and you just do not want to give your child a stimulant well, then that kid could really suffer by not being able to do well in school, not having friends, mm -hmm. being socially inappropriate, or worse, we have data, we have research showing that untreated children and adolescents um, and adults are more inclined to get into legal trouble and end up in jail. And there's been studies showing, I don't remember the stats, but it's very, very high, something like 80%, 70% of inmate uh Inmates, is that the right word? Yeah, mm -hmm. inmates have ADHD in addition Whoa. to other things. Wow. So there's something we have to weigh. You know, are we right. going to take away the option of stimulants because we're afraid of potential abuse or and then worry about our kids turning into you know, criminal behavior, uh, kids with criminal behaviors? Right. We really have to weigh the pros and cons. So if you have the potential to abuse drugs or have that in your past, then you need to be cautious and work very, very closely with your professional team. If that has never been a problem for you and you are not an addictive personality, then I don't see a problem usually in these medications. But long-term versus short-term, it's anybody's guess. Okay. I mean, that's great context for someone to know going into it as well. 
And I think perhaps some of the resistance toward taking medication may also come down to stigma. Would you say that's correct? There's a big problem with stigma. And um, when I first started out in the business, it started off with certain, oh gosh, I don't want to get myself into trouble, certain groups of people who were just anti-medication in general. It didn't mm-hmm. just have to be ADD meds. They were against antidepressants. Mm-hmm. They were against anything. And they made a real big stink. So when I would present at these big conferences, they would be out outside with signs and media and, oh, wow. you guys, are dr- you're drugging our kids. You're drugging. That seems to have receded a bit. Okay. But there is still a different kind of stigma that I see, unfortunately, which is, again, which I mentioned earlier, that people see ADHD as a like a character flaw. Right. They don't understand that it's a brain condition, that it's mm-hmm. how our chemicals are not working properly or adequately when we have an ADHD brain. So it's a misunderstanding. It's um, often just a poor, you know, uh, no education of what is ADHD. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this character flaw. And that's that's a lot of what I see with the stigma. And then the media often just takes off with an incident here and there where, you know, somebody's on a medication and they're selling it to classmates or they've taken an overdose and they've died. And and sure, those things happen. I'm not going to pretend they don't happen, but we don't want to let that stop people from getting the appropriate treatment that they need and deserve to have a healthy, happy life. Absolutely. And I love that we are on the topic of stigma because that was our third listener question. How can we change the stigma of what it means to have an ADHD diagnosis and let people know that it looks different for everyone, that it isn't just a TikTok trend or a way to get some Adderall? Yeah. Well, again, it's the education part that we need to uh, jump off as a TikTok at times <laughs> and look at some really good books. Some of them I've mentioned yes. to you already and, and read what's being written by professionals, not um, adolescents or young yeah. adults or preteens on TikTok and other social media. I don't want to just come down on TikTok. It's all over. Right. And we hear it in school. We hear it at work and we read it in the newspapers. There are certain really good newspapers that have up until recently been very anti-ADHD and have created a tremendous problem with the stigma of it. So um, really educating ourselves, going to, there's so much stuff online. There's so many wonderful support groups and just educational groups and websites. I don't even know if I mentioned my website, but I have a lot of articles online. It's abbconsults.com. Yep. So learn from the scientists. Don't learn from your, your peers or people who have an agenda. A lot of these people have an agenda. They right. want to think and make you think that having ADHD and taking medication for it is bad. Right. And that's what we got to get away from. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. if someone listening right now is thinking, okay, I need to figure out how to get a diagnosis, what would their next steps be in terms of that kind of uh, process and then getting treatment afterward? Okay, so I always tell people to start off with their primary care physician okay. because there are medical conditions that can really look like ADHD. Good to know. Some of them, yeah, so some of them are thyroid disease. If you have an underactive thyroid, you can become very sluggish. Your memory can be impaired. You can't get going in the day. Um, you just shut down and don't get things done. Right. Or if you have hyperthyroid, you can look very hyper. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're just racing, racing, racing. And so you want to get your thyroid checked. Um, allergies. 
If you have severe or significant allergies, that can look like ADHD. You can't focus. Right. You're tired. Um, you just can't get moving. And sleep issues. If you are, if you've got a sleep problem and you're not getting enough sleep, that can look like ADHD. So you may want to check in with uh, your doctor and maybe get a sleep study. So I would start off with your doctor, number one. And then the next step is if they think, okay, you know, it might be a good idea for you to get an evaluation, ask them, do they know of anybody good that can evaluate you for ADHD? And I would highly, this is where I get really crazy, mm-hmm. highly recommend you find a clinician in mental health. Now, it could be a psychiatrist, it could be a neurologist, it could be a psychologist, it could be like me, I'm a clinical social worker, clinical means I do therapy. There's different kinds of social workers. Um, There's a lot of different people in the mental health field, but it needs to be someone in mental health, um, not like a coach. Coaches cannot um, diagnose, cannot evaluate. Yeah. Yeah. And then find that person and you want someone who's had a lot of experience doing this kind of work with adult ADD. Now, if it can be really hard to find someone in your area, and then you might look for someone who works with kids and then go, like a lot of adults who are who are identified as having ADHD figure that out because they have a child with ADHD. Like you. And they see, yeah, like me. Yeah. And they see this child, oh, gosh, that reminds me of when I was that kid's age. Oh, yeah, I couldn't sit through uh, my class because that's what my kid's doing. So <laughs> if they're being evaluated and treated, ask them. Yeah, that's and so interesting. Say, yeah, it can be hard, though. So there are some online directories of people who specialize in ADHD. I have one on my side at ADD okay. Consult. It's still very new, so I don't have it populated yet. I'm working on it. Okay. But the organizations I mentioned earlier, like chad.org, Chad. they have a directory. Okay. ADA, ADD.org has a directory. And another really good one is at Attitude Magazine, which uh, is also yes. online. Okay. And their, their uh, URL is um, attitudemag.com. They have a really good directory. Awesome. This is such an amazing resource. Thank you so much for spending an hour with us to share this as such a valuable and free resource for individuals, whether or not they're experiencing it themselves, they know someone who might be, or they just want to learn so we can undo stigma. This is so, so powerful and helpful. Thank you so much. You are very welcome. And I'm just thrilled that you had me on because, you know, I'm trying to just get the word out that this is something that's highly treatable. And there's no need to suffer because there is help out there. Hi, I'm Jenny Gaither, and I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 32 years old in the middle of the pandemic. Oh my God, yes. Okay, so Jenny, you were diagnosed as an adult. Was your diagnosis like a revelation or did you see it coming? It was a revelation. Okay, you were shocked by it? I was... I feel like shocked is even too small of a word for the experience because my whole life, things that I didn't realize I needed answers to started making sense in a way that I didn't realize. I. It's sort of like when you need closure on something, mm-hmm. that's how it felt of, oh my gosh, I now understand myself better and all of these experiences that were so hard. Wow. Okay. So a lot was reframed for you. Mm-hmm. Do you have an example that someone might be able to connect with? Yeah, so I I feel like I'm a pretty intellectual person, mm-hmm. but have never, ever thought that I was smart. It's my biggest 
hurdle in terms of my limiting beliefs is that I've always thought I was dumb. And that was because in school, I couldn't really listen. I was Mm -hmm. always focused on observing every other thing about the room, everything about the teacher and their voice. And I couldn't focus. Different forms of stimulation, right? Like visual, auditory. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And so information just never was going in. School was harder Mm -hmm. for me. And I think that it was so frustrating when it came to reading because we had to do these tests that, you know, put you in a label of beginner reader, advanced reader. And as, you know, a kid, it's like kind of heartbreaking when you're in the lowest category of being able to read and you're just like, wait, am I dumb? And even to this day, it's like I have to read something and then reread it and reread it because my brain just starts hopping around like a frog. Right. And I have to go back and be like, wait, you're reading. (laughs) 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 So, you know, to have something to label it and say, oh, this is something that other people also experience. And it's not something that I have to just say, like, or suppress and just be like, that's mm-hmm. weird and just keep that to myself. Yeah. And struggle and quiet. Right. It's not like you're worse compared to someone else. You're just different. I'm just different. And it's yeah. so freeing to know that, okay, this is actually a thing. There's lots of people out, out there like me. And like, isn't that so cool to know? And wouldn't that have been great to know? Because there are <laughs> so many ago, things years that, ago. Yeah. Yeah, that I can do now to help me. My baseline, similar if you've ever dealt with like depression or something else where it's like you can't get to the baseline sort of, no, I don't like the word normal, but yeah, yeah baseline of like everyone else. neurotypical or whatever you want to call it. I feel like even that's going to be phased out soon. Yeah. It's a, working on overdrive just mm-hmm. to get there. Right. Which is exhausting. Yeah. When you are an overachiever too, and you like to grow and you like to be progressing and it's just so hard to get to base. Yeah. It's just so frustrating. It feels like you're trying to run like a sprint with everyone, but you've got a backpack that's like a hundred pounds. That is it. Okay. Yeah. That I mean, that makes a lot of sense just from knowing you and knowing like just a general framework of ADHD in general. What is something that you have learned since your diagnosis that has improved your life or made things easier for you? I think knowing that I'm, that I have ADHD makes me so much more mindful of... So when I think of any... If if we use labels and mm-hmm. if I use ADHD as a way to kind of get out of things or... You know how mm-hmm. like I can use like that scapegoat. as an excuse <laughs> yeah, totally. to procrastinate or sure. to not do things. I can use that against myself, mm. but there's a way to use that knowledge and s- serve me. So now right. I'm so much more mindful of things that I've learned, like on TikTok, that you got to put your shoes on when you're going to do your work because you feel like your body's like, oh, we're going to go do something. So it's like ready. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like an adaptation for your physical body, for your brain to trigger, like I'm in a different state of mind right now. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's like when you want to eat clean and you Mm -hmm. only have boxes of candy (laughs) in your house, you're not setting yourself up for success. So I think I'm just so much more mindful of all the things that I need that have worked so far and things that I continue to try and put those things in place to, again, make my journey just that much more supportive and and helpful as opposed to, you know, making it even harder for myself to be successful. Totally. That's amazing. Do you have... Any bits of advice for someone listening who maybe just got diagnosed or is about to on, I don't know, either like counseling, words of wisdom, or a tip? I think find people that have it. 
Mm-hmm. There's so many people that have ADHD. And yes. I I think there's probably more and more people in older age that are have always wondered. Mm-hmm. And finally getting and diagnosed. And finally getting diagnosed. And yeah. I think talking about it is so freeing because even my friend, Morgan, she, she'll be like, it's so... And, and not in a mean way, but mm-hmm. she'll be like, whenever you're texting or whenever you do something, you literally don't hear a thing. Right. You disappear into that I one thing. I disappear. Yep. And it's like a silo. Yep. And so now knowing why that happens, mm-hmm. it's just, it makes sense. It doesn't, you don't feel as like weird or. Right. Othered. Othered. Yeah. And so your friends can also better understand you. So yeah. I think talking about it with people you feel safe and comfortable and that love you unconditionally is so helpful because then they can better understand why you do the things you do right. and like why are you like this? <laughs> yeah, like don't ask you deep questions yeah. when you're texting someone else. You right. know, you know what I'm saying. Absolutely. Like, did having this new context for your life, did reframing your life and your experiences through the lens of ADHD help you see yourself as smart? Honestly, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that it really it was similar to like this backpack image that I have now in my head of like, oh, like this. And that's what these limiting beliefs are. So mine is that and yours could be totally different, but it's, it's realizing and poking holes in it and being like, that's, see, that's actually Mm -hmm. not probably true. Yep. You've been working harder than everyone. I've had to work harder than everyone. Mm -hmm. And isn't it crazy that you that you actually passed mm-hmm. and you got to college and you were on a scholarship yep. and like you somehow made it into honors and and that's just a testament to how not maybe smart that you thought you were but it was your drive and your all these other parts of you that you love so much and so it does make you really yeah it makes you reflect on yourself and I I don't think we give ourselves enough credit yeah Um, anybody, anyone, but yeah, I think that it really has taken that load off in a way of making me feel like, oh, I can breathe. Maybe I'm not this person that I've always identified as. And maybe, maybe this is actually really cool. (laughs) It is really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Caroline, we're just jumping right into it. You've recently been diagnosed with ADHD. How do you feel about it right now? I feel really seen and validated, a little bit still kind of afraid, okay. but hopeful. Amazing. Yeah, I, I feel that way for sure. So you recently got this diagnosis. What made you think that you should see a professional? Do you want to give us a background on like some of your symptoms or experiences that kind of led up to this point where you're like, okay, I should see someone? Yes. So I'm, this is going to be like full honesty hours and stuff that I've never like mentioned online before really. So well, thank you for that. Yep. (laughs) I'm like buckle up on that. So I have dealt with depression my entire life. It runs rampant in every lineage of my family. And it's important to note that because just hold on to that negative information. Yeah. I also have been on antidepressants my entire life on and off because of that. So I also, (laughs) medical diagnoses, have PCOS, polycystic Mm -hmm. ovarian syndrome. I was diagnosed when I was 16. and That's amazing, actually. That's like a really early diagnosis. It is. I hadn't, I actually, a friend's mom 
yeah, a friend's mom who was a nurse noticed my knuckles were really dark and randomly was like, have you ever had a period? And I was like, no. And she was like, huh, I think you have PCOS. Whoa, your knuckles? Yeah, because you get darkening of the skin, which is like a diabetic trait from insulin resistance. Oh, damn. Okay, we'll get to this on another episode, but I want to hear more about that. Okay, so you have PCOS. You got diagnosed at 16. So I I got diagnosed with PCOS. I have insulin resistance and I am uh, incapable of losing weight on my own because Mm -hmm. my appetite, my insulin, it's just detrimentally hard. And if you don't know what that feels like, I can't explain it to you other than the fact that it feels like you're a bottomless pit, not in like a fun way, but in a like, you can't stop thinking about food and you can't get anything done because whatever it may be. And I, so I reached a point last summer where I really had gained a lot of weight. Um, My hormones were very out of whack and my doctor had put me on something called metformin, which Mm -hmm. is for people that are diabetic or pre-struggle with insulin or just have insulin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it made me so sick. I literally couldn't take it. Like it wasn't even something that I could keep taking past like the few weeks. So she then put me on something called Phentermine, which is very much like kind of a, I don't want to call it taboo, but I I think it's, it's very much so like it's used for people that need to lose weight because it completely suppresses your appetite. And it's a little hard for me to talk about it because I'm, I'm not someone that like wants to talk about like the Ozempic craze and stuff in the sense that like a lot of people that don't have insulin resistance are taking advantage of those things and seeing great and seeing great results or great and uh, using the word great in the sense of like efficacious, like results from those. But I really, really feel strongly that like, it's kind of unfair for me to talk about it and say like, Oh, I got these results and I got this thing, but I just like need to add the disclaimer that like I did this, I got on something that has this side effect on purpose with my doctor's request because I have insulin resistance. Yep. And it's like just super important. important for me to say that because yep. I just like, that's a whole other, you know, worm can. Well, thank you for but, being so responsible with diet culture and, you know, protecting people in that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it's bare minimum for me to express that that is a thing. And I don't want people that don't struggle with insulin resistance to go look for some miracle thing. Like I needed this to be at a place where I could make better choices and not have like the sort of like food noise. Yeah. Constantly. Constantly. Yeah. So constantly. So for me, I got on Phentermine and once I got on it, my appetite was very much lower and regularized. But the thing about Phentermine is it's the same drug class of stimulants as the drug class of stimulants that are provided to people that are diagnosed with ADHD, mm-hmm. ADD, ADD, whatever it may be, um, but a little bit different. So this pill that I was taking in the midst of my depression, whatever it may be, was jolting me with not necessarily having all this food noise now, which was great. And I was able to actually lose 40 pounds and work really hard. I worked out every day. Like this was very mindful choices, but the takeaway for me wasn't just that it was that I was taking this and suddenly for the first time, really in a really, really long time that I can remember, I had like the mental clarity and kind of just like freedom in my head to do the things that I needed to get Mm -hmm. done and get through a list of tasks that felt normal to normal, not normal, sorry, normal to like everyday people, just things that people do like brush your teeth or, you know, get something validated. If you quote unquote neurotypical, those things. Yeah. Neurotypical. We'll put it that way. Um, the correct (laughs) way. And I, I felt that I was feeling these really positive effects in this other, you know, realm of my life. 
And I, the, the thing about fentramine is you can only stay on it for four months because it's really not something that should Use be long-term. Well, some doctors will, some doctors will put it long-term. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to make any sort of like solid claims, but the doctor that I was working with, my doctor didn't want me to take it for more than four months because it really also, you lose a lot of the effectiveness of that main like appetite suppressant. Um, so after I stopped taking it, not only did my appetite kind of regulate, but I felt a big lack of like ability to just do the things I needed to do because when I was taking it and feeling, wow, like my depression feels better. My, you know, the things that I feel are so stressful to me and this like just constant inability to like wake up and feel rested. Mm -hmm. Like all this stuff feels like it's gone and the big cloud is lifted, but then I stopped taking it and I, felt just absolutely stuck all the time. And I didn't make the link that it was ADHD Uh until, or maybe ADHD until I started really just like having no ability to like make it through the day until half the day was over and trying to like trying to understand if that was depression Mm -hmm. because I have depression, but I feel like that's really well treated. So I ended up like me and everybody else kind of on like the neuro spicy Mm -hmm. neurotypical, whatever it may be side of TikTok. Um, cause I do have sensory issues and honestly, a lot of people in my family are, I would say very much so in different places on the spectrum Mm -hmm. and that's fine and wonderful that they were able to, you know, ascertain that information. So for me, like having sensory issues and trying to like understand myself and like my own little ticks in life and like what makes me feel good or bad, whatever led me to kind of like conversations around adult women with ADHD and the misdiagnosis of like, not misdiagnosis of depression, but the fact that there are definitely I guess you could say symptoms There's overlap. fall into both buckets, a lot of yeah. overlap in certain ways. And the fact that, you know, treating one won't treat both mm-hmm. for sure if you do have both. And so starting to feel like I was hearing people talk about their day-to-day and their thoughts and the things that like paralyzed them in terms of like getting things done felt like I was like listening to my own internal monologue wow. in a way that I was like, it feels like I'm being talked to directly. Like the concept of like waking up and not feeling rested until 2 PM or so. And like getting through a routine and like knowing I have a to-do list, but not being able to even get through it. And I literally would just like stand in place at the sink, staring at myself being like, I have this overwhelming list of things. I have all these thoughts. I can't get any of them done. And like, I feel also sad and like all these different feelings. And having someone like word for word sort of spew them to me in the same kind of just tone and like confusion, whatever, like questioning that I had definitely made me feel like, is this something that I have? And like, is this something that is even a real thing though? Mm -hmm. Because I think that the one thing that's been hard for me is like, I know that there are so many, you know, I don't want to say like there, there's a, there's something called the pinking of Viagra, for example, which is like the drug companies that started to make female Viagra because they said that that, that women needed that when theoretically there's like scientific proof they that don't. <laughs> women don't have ED. It's just like adding pharmaceutical, you know, to sales and that we just aren't teaching things right in science right. class. But the point being like, just is the pharmaceutical company just I mean, valid. marketing off of something yeah. And because I mean, the valid thing question. Is, like, I and we, it's a valid question because it's like we all hear jokes in society and like on TV shows about like, you know, moms popping Adderall when they're tired because they're little kids that are like 
defiant, like we're prescribed Adderall and like misusing it, like people in college taking it because they need to write a paper. But it's like, there's a lot of, it's taboo to me because then you also have, you know, the people that are like how I got off Adderall after years of like, you know, not needing it. So there's like, and I'm using Adderall just as like the classification of that. For sure. Because people know it. Yeah. Yeah. But like, in general, like, I don't want to take things that I don't need. Of course. I don't, I really yeah. don't. And so like knowing if I get on this stimulant, like, is it actually going to do anything for me? Or is anyone that's on like speed basically going to be a better version of themselves? Like, is my brain, you know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like needing this chemical that it's missing or like, and, and really what is it that I'd be taking? So I, I really sat on that for a really long time before I was pragmatic enough to make an appointment with a doctor, which in itself is so hard. Yeah. There's such a barrier to entry to Huge. get an appointment with a psychiatrist. Yep. That is such an unfortunate thing that so many people, I think, miss out on. So that's a whole other thing. But I eventually was able to get a, a, um, an appointment with a psychiatrist that was virtual and got on with her and basically just sort of explained you know, my depression symptoms, what I was taking versus, you know, what I felt like without, even with on a good dose of my antidepressants, things that I still was going through day to day and just kind of explaining how hard it is to live a life and refine a job and like all these things when you feel really frozen and paralyzed mm-hmm. in a way that isn't like the classic ADHD of like a kid that can't sit still in class, right. like the stereotype the thing. Yeah. The stereotype for sure, for me, at least in my head has always been, and honestly, I'm trying to rid myself of like the kid that has too much energy that they're trying to just like put on something to like even them out. Um, but seeing her and talking to her and like, she was very non-responsive at first with the things I was saying. And I almost was like, is she gaslighting (laughs) me and like going to tell me that all these things are invalid. But at the end of my spiel and at the end of the questions, at the end of the test, she basically was like, so you are such a good candidate. Like I literally, I don't know how you haven't really at all been diagnosed with like the way that you even speak, like the, the thought patterns and like way that your thoughts turn and like, just like, she was like, even seeing you on camera, like I could see you pause and like look around and Mm -hmm. just like, the jumping around of that mannerisms you see seeing your mannerisms but also seeing how you process things and like the like hardships that you're like so specifically reaching to like understand Mm -hmm. is not like depression necessarily Uh. and she was like i really think that you'd benefit off of this and i also think that we should lower your antidepressant dose because i think that like you don't need to be on two because i'm on two technically wow. one they're both on the highest doses i'll just i don't, I don't mind yeah. talking about it. i'm on wellbutrin and sertraline mm-hmm. i was on 300 milligrams of wellbutrin mm-hmm. and now they're putting me on 150, 150. Yeah. and basically yeah and she basically was like i think that there are a lot you don't need to be on everything i think that the medicine that you're going to take may actually like take the place level you out across the board and take the place of a lot of the wellbutrin wow. And I felt really just like fulfilled that I was able to hear like everything that I was worried about and like sort of parroted back to me in a way of like, no, you like definitely like the way that you feel and think and live and exist and like process isn't necessarily neurotypical. And this is a real thing that people do benefit off of. And like, I'm not wrong for feeling the way that I feel. And so I, Literally, then it was on me to get an EKG and take a urine test, which again, ADHD, it's like doing the things that you have to do sometimes feels so 
like difficult that like the concept of like making the doctor's appointment itself for the fall is overwhelming. Was, like, okay, I just have to do this. It was overwhelming, but I did it. I literally made a doctor's appointment for the next day oh, good. with my doctor. I went in, I got an EKG, I had my test. I literally was so responsible and, you know, quick with it because I knew that like, this is the thing that I've been trying to get to just the appointment and diagnosis. Like on at this point it's on me and I have to like do it. And then I have a, they put me on Vyvanse. So I'm starting that. It's one of the, you know, they're all different names. Mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone's heard of um, Riddle and Vyvanse, Concerta, whatever it may be. Um, so I'm starting that one. I'm taking this one specifically because my brother was diagnosed with ADHD as a teenager and had great success with this. And okay. I told them that. And I have no experience with it myself. And I didn't grow up with my brother, but I just wanted to share the fact that it, like, genetically you know genetically blood related person he had success with this and um really improved everything for him so it's been two or three days of being on it and i feel like the way that i've like had just a clarity in my head kind of have a comeuppance so out of the blue is almost it makes me want to like cry for me before because like doing things that feel like the tasks that I just need to get done and that someone would just do in a day that literally took so much energy out for me that I had to like coin the term carcass time, which yes. is the time where I would just lay in silence yes. because like I was so debilitated and exhausted yeah. from doing the normal things. Yes. Like maybe that isn't depression and being able to honor the fact that I do have depression, but maybe that's not my depression speaking to wow. me. And like feeling that like, wait, maybe I have actually made big strides in my depression and this is not that. And that like depression isn't the thing that is like, you know, debilitating, you know, things difficult for me and debilitating me. Like maybe it is something else and there is something that you can take and it isn't just like the pinking of Viagra, but you know, in ADHD terms. And so I've been on it for a few days and I feel like the amount I've gotten done, the amount I've been able to like process in my head, the amount I've just kind of been able to like have clear pathways of different things has been so great. I will say I am fucking exhausted. I cannot sleep. Oh, interesting. I say that okay. Because I, it'll be interesting to see like how that pans out over the next few weeks, few months. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious and I'm, I don't want to say that and like scare anyone yeah. on day three. Yeah. You know what it's I mean? so like, early. I think I'm sure it's so early. I'm sure like even when I was talking about that thing center. I mean that I was on the first two weeks, one of the side effects is insomnia. Mm-hmm. I slept very, probably 17 hours in two weeks Whoa. and I'm kind of, and then it, net, it, and then it netted out and I was fine. Okay. And it wasn't a matter of like being tired. I was exhausted, but I just couldn't sleep. Yeah. Um, but it netted out and I was fine. So I'm curious if this is that same yeah. sort of thing that it'll sort of heal out and like try whatever the word is titrate, titrate itself, yep. um, into, into slumber. Mm-hmm. But I will say that if I had to trade being a little tired for the clarity and willingness to like leave my house and all the things that I am feeling now, I would trade it in a second wow. and take some sequel because I didn't realize like how good you can feel not having to like, you know, gaslight yourself into the fact that it's trauma that's sitting in your cells, which sometimes it is for yep. people and sometimes it's for me, but it doesn't have to be that way. If I can recognize the fact that like, maybe this is a thing that I really do need to treat. Absolutely. Would you say that the depression symptoms that you're now kind of associating with the struggle and like exhaustion from ADHD, would you say that those symptoms were feelings of overwhelm and exhaustion and like lack of interest? I would say that a lot of the depression symptoms, especially the pattern-like ones, like things I was avoiding, like certain self-care habits, I've seen 
turn around in the last few days. I'm going to be so blunt and probably freak out some people that like watch me and follow me, but my oral care in the last little few years, six years or so, seven years, whatever it may be, has been so bad from what I thought was depression Mm -hmm. and the concept of the thought of having to brush my teeth and go through that process and get toothpaste all over myself and be like sticky and be Mm -hmm. wet and like all these different things like was so polarizing to me that I don't think I've brushed my teeth every single day in a week in the last 20 years. Um, I don't even mind saying that on camera because I know that like someone out there hopefully feels validated and understood. That's actually so much more normal than people realize for any mental health struggle. I talked to a lot of dentists about this, that um, gingivitis is heavily correlated with depression, anxiety, and I'm assuming as well ADHD. Yeah. So I've got raging gingivitis and on the cusp for periodontal disease. And, you know, even when I got diagnosed with that and they were like, you need to start taking better care of your teeth or you're going to lose your the jaw, I still, the concept of doing those things, like I couldn't do that. And it wasn't a matter of not being able to understand that I needed to. It's just like, I couldn't. It's not a logic thing. (laughs) It's not a logic thing and I can't explain it. Now, now on the, to caveat that it's been three days since I've been on it and I've brushed and flossed my teeth twice a day, every day since, Damn. which I know sounds like not that big. No, of a it deal does. For some it people, sounds like a big I deal. Like, yeah. Like I literally broke down crying because my thought was, Oh, it's time to brush my teeth in the morning. And usually it's not that. Yep. And the feeling of like being in control of habits and getting to be the one that picks them, whether it's something as quote unquote easy as brushing your teeth or going on a walk or whatever and like getting to say that I want to do a thing and not being polarized to do the mm-hmm. thing as big or small it like feels like a lot of freedom that I didn't realize I was missing and I'm really excited to see like you know if this is day three and I'm already doing these things and it's becoming hopefully a habit like what's gonna you know be the case a month from now two months from now whatever right. so I don't mind being vulnerable about those things because like if no one else, which I'm sure there are lots yeah. of people out there talking about it, but if no one else, you know, in my little niche or whatever, I'll do it because I think that it's just so taboo and people don't want to talk about the things that make them, you know, not the perfect human and make them unlovable or gross or whatever, use whatever word you want. Like it's all self-deprecating obviously, but like, I, I think that there are so many of these traits that we just don't talk about yep. and there may be, there may be just all backed on depression. They may be laziness and maybe nothing, or it might be ADHD. Yeah. I don't know. For me, I think it's ADHD though. Literally, you're such a hero for this. I guarantee you there are people listening who have never been able to talk about that to anyone and they feel so much shame. And that's the whole reason why we do episodes like this to destigmatize and break down that shame and help people go through what you th- just went through to feel validated and seen and understood and like they're not alone so thank you for doing that for so many people absolutely i think that like we have to be there for each other and not gatekeep you know information and experiences because i heard you know someone that was speaking and it felt like they were speaking to me and that's the thing that you know propelled me into feeling like i'm ready to accept whatever diagnosis is and if i or anyone else you know can do that then that's just like there's there's nothing better it's a blessing thank you caroline you're the best 
Hi, I'm Avery. I was diagnosed with ADHD at age 31, and I talk about this a little bit on episode 35. But once I was diagnosed with ADHD, I honestly had a weight lifted off of my shoulders and felt so much relief. I think getting a diagnosis has helped me understand myself better. And it also allowed me to give myself more grace because I used to put so much pressure on myself to just handle it like everyone else. And now I really embrace my fresh ways of thinking and my creativity all the while I'm learning better habits and tools to help me stay focused at work and live a full life without feeling anxious and scattered anymore. Thank you so much for joining us today on this special edition of This Is Fine. I hope it was informational, validating, empowering, destigmatizing, and I hope you feel a little more informed, seen and heard, and equipped to take some next steps if you've been considering exploring an ADHD diagnosis yourself. We've got a special announcement next week. I'm super excited to share with you. Subscribe and turn on notifications so you get the news the second it comes out. For more information, I have resources linked in the description. Everything you heard today will have some kind of hyperlink so you can explore more and get all the tools you need. I love you all, my babes. A bien so. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of This Is Fine. I've been your host, Dominique Michelle Astorino. We're based in San Diego, recording in studio at DLI Productions in Pacific Beach with Emmy Award-winning sound designer Dan De La Isla. This is a comedy and advice podcast, but for legal reasons, this entire podcast is a joke and none of it is medical advice. To download the transcript or learn more, visit thisisfinepodcast.com. 